with verse 1. This is God's word. Then all the commanders of the forces, and Johanan the son of Kareah, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near, and they said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you, and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. And whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends you to us. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. At the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he summoned Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces who were with him and all the people from the least to the greatest and said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy, that he may have mercy on you. And let you remain in your own land. But if you say, we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread and we will dwell there. Then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, Then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. All the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you. When you go to Egypt, you shall become an execration, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. You shall see this place no more. The Lord has said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know for a certainty that I have warned you this day that you have gone astray at the cost of your lives. For you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, declare to us, and we will do it. And I have... This day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God in anything that he sent me to tell you. Now, therefore, know for a certainty that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go to live. Read that far in God's word. And the question that bubbles up from this chapter is, do we seek God's guidance first Or do we make our plans first and then ask God to rubber stamp them? That's the issue. That's the rub for us. Chapter 42 has a lesson for us on this very topic. The situation here is that a group of refugees from Jerusalem were in danger. 
They're running away from Jerusalem and planning to run all the way to Egypt to find safety in Egypt. They're stopped halfway, and he said, somebody should probably pray about this. Let's get Jeremiah. So they get Jeremiah and ask him to pray about this. Let's get advice from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, very graciously, responds and says, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for direction for you. After 10 days, God gave an answer. The answer is very clear. If, If they stayed, they'd be safe. If they ran away to Egypt, they'd be in danger and to the extent they would die. Pretty clear. It brings out spiritual lessons for us. Do we seek God's guidance first? Or do we make up our own plans first and then ask God to basically baptize and bless our plans? And our main point on the outline is when God would not endorse their decision to trust, do the wrong thing, they mistrusted God and disobeyed him, uncovering their desperate need for salvation. So first, they're on the road to where they wanted to go, pausing to ask for God's instructions, verses 1 to 4. Our second point will be from verses 5 and 6, simply falsely pledging to comply with whatever God's answer would be. And then third, our third point from verses 7 to 22, that whole long passage about God unambiguously giving clear instructions and stark warnings that they couldn't hardly misinterpret. So first, here they are on the road to where they want to go, pausing to ask for God's instructions. They want to go to Egypt. Uh, When they asked Jeremiah to pray for them, it was really wanting God to approve of their plans so they could feel better about doing it. Verse 1, Johanan and the commanders gathered. Verse 2, they asked Jeremiah to pray for them, but listen closely. I don't know if you caught it when I read it. Sometimes I try to emphasize certain things for you to pick up, but listen closely as I read once more. Can you hear the problem? As I read the request of Jeremiah, it goes like this in verse 2. Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us. Did you catch it? They see God as your God, Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah's God. Is it not your God also? Is it not our God? You pray to your God, Jeremiah. That's the the error. That's the wrong. And then I want you to back up to chapter 41, verse 17, where I did show you before you read, read that these people ran from Jerusalem and were staying near Bethlehem, intending to do what? Chapter 41, 17 gives us their intention, intending to go to Egypt. Notice it doesn't say, intending to ask God what to do next. It doesn't say that. It says, intending to go to Egypt. We know what their intent is. The Bible gives us their intent. Now look at chapter 42, verse 3, where they're asking Jeremiah to pray for them. And again, we hear the word your, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Right. Right. Yeah. That you want the Lord to show you the way you should go or the thing that you should do. Now that you're already into Bethlehem and halfway to Egypt, you're pausing to ask God, what should you do? Do you see the deception there? I had a little bit of an extended illustration for you because this is really the, the nub of it. This is what's happening in the chapter. So I'm going to tell a story about one of my children calling me on the cell phone. And I will not identify which of my four children it is. And to be honest with you, it's because I can't remember which one it was. It's true. So I'm answering the phone. They're calling me. Hello? Hi, Dad. I hear car noise. Are you in the garage? No. Oh. Um, where are you? Driving at a stoplight. Where are you going? To my friend's house. Who told you you could go to your friend's house? Well, that's what I was calling to ask you. 
Okay, so you are on your way to your friend's house calling me to ask permission to go to your friend's house. Right. What would you do if the answer is no? Long pause. Hello? I would come home? Right answer. But do you see the problem? The problem? That you're out of sequence. Out of sequence? Is there an echo on this phone? An echo on the phone? It's called a rubber stamp. A rubber stamp? The problem is how you see your dad. You see your dad as a permission giver instead of a wisdom giver. Because of that, you're out of sequence. And instead of first asking a dad for wisdom about your decision, you made your decision first. Second, you acted on it. And then third, you telephoned dad hoping he'll line up with your decision. But you already decided, you already acted, and you're already halfway there. So all you need me for is a rubber stamp on your decision. Long pause. Hello? Hello? That's really wise, dad? I'll be home in a few minutes. Right. Hey, Dad. Yeah? When I get home, can we start over? Yes. That's my illustration. This is what's happening in chapter 42. And consider the difference between us, between the people in the story, and the perfect child of God the Son of God, even the Lord Jesus Christ, how he spoke to his Father. Did he get things out of sequence? What sort of submission did Jesus show us that God the Father expects? Listen to the prayer of Jesus as he's at a decision point. Luke twenty-two forty-two, words of Jesus. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The posture, of dis the disposition of submission to God the Father is missing in our chapter. Philippians 2.8, Paul puts it this way, describing Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the sort of obedience. That's the sort of submission to the guidance of God the Father that is shown by Christ the Son of God. It's the sort of submission that's required of all the children of God. And that's what's missing. So back to our story in verse 4, Jeremiah graciously said to the people halfway to Egypt that Jeremiah would pray for them. Listen carefully to verse 4. You get a sense that Jeremiah predicted that God would disapprove of this request. Verse 4 reads, Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I've heard you. Behold, I'll, I'll pray to the Lord your God according to your request. And whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Don't you get the sense that he kind of knows how this is going to roll out? Brings us to our second point. Maybe they caught some of his tone. In verse 5, this is what they say. Um, May God be witness against us, and so on falsely pledging to comply with whatever God's answer would be. May God treat us poorly if we do not uh, submit to God's plan. This language of may God be witness against us, we hear that sort of language, the Apostle Paul. When, when, you, when you read the New Testament, you say, may God be witness, and that sort of thing. But, but here, it's false. They don't really mean it, see? 
Verse 6, the people even said, whether it's good or bad, how could it be bad? It's God's will. It's what he wants you to do. Bad means against what you wanted. (laughs) Even if he tells me no. Even if he tells me no, they're recognizing that it could be something we like or something we don't like, what we quantify as good or bad. Whether it's good or bad, we will obey. And if you read all the way to the end of verse 6, they actually say it a second time that they would obey the voice of the Lord. Remember the Shema? We've been studying that, seeing that as a theme, the Hebrew word for obey. They keep promising we're going to obey. Hmm. When they say good and bad and we're going to obey, do they mean it like Jesus meant it? Even if I must die for you, Father, I will obey you. Did they mean it like that? Is that the sort of level at which they're saying, whether it's good or bad, we will obey the voice of God? Of course not. They're being false. They're being fake. They're being religious. They're putting on a good show for Jeremiah. They sense that Jeremiah is going to ask, and the answer is going to come back. But they're saying all the right words, aren't they? But they don't mean those words. They lied. They lied to Jeremiah. They lied to God. They lied to themselves. And maybe to some extent, they even believed their own self-deception and thought that they would be okay with God saying, don't go to Egypt. But I want you to notice something. There's a pause of 10 days between verse 6 and verse 7. We, we know that by the beginning of verse 7, where we read at the end of 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So this pause between Jeremiah asking on their behalf and God giving the answer. And I think there's a, a quick little lesson right there. Sometimes God lets time pass. I think that's an important lesson for us when we talk about prayer, we talk about guidance, we talk about seeking God. Sometimes God lets time pass pass. And remember that as you think through how prayer works, how our seeking God and his plans for us works. So 10 days, <laughs> it's actually rather fast. When you think about biblical history and redemptive history, this is lightning speed answer. Unless you live in a world with cell phones and texting and instant messaging and you're under 25, And 10 days seems like a really, really long, unreasonable span of time to wait for an answer. But just take that with you. Sometimes God lets time pass. And we go to our third point, hearing God's unambiguously clear instructions and stark warnings. Verse 7, God's answer comes. Verse 8, everyone's gathered. This isn't just the leaders. This is everyone from the least to the greatest. It's a giant gathering of the people of God, for God to give an answer through his prophet. Verse 9, thus says the Lord. Verse 10, remain in the land. That's clear already, but we've got a lot more verses that back that up. Remain in the land, I'll build you up. He uses language here, remember from the initial call of Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 10, build up, not tear down, plant, not pluck up. That's the language of the initial call of Jeremiah himself. Look how God has blessed Jeremiah. He will bless you like that. That's the implication of using this verbiage in verse 10. Verse 11, as far as the king of Babylon, you know, the one that's probably really upset with you, the one that they killed his appointee, Governor Gedaliah, that king of Babylon who's upset that you assassinated his appointee, don't fear him, God says, verse 11. Don't fear the king of Babylon. Why not? The Lord's answer is simple. Because I am with you, 
At Christmas time, we would say Emmanuel, God with us, because I am with you. That's it. That's all you need. What does the nearness of God provide when we're fearful? What does the nearness of God provide when we're in danger that ought to be sufficient for our hearts, that ought to conquer our fears, our anxieties? The nearness of God, he goes on to say in verse 11, provides saving and delivering from anyone, such as, for example, this king of Babylon, who's all fired up and you think he's going to harm you. I got this. You're mine. I'm here to save and deliver you. I am with you. Look at me. Don't look at Babylon. Look at me. Look here. Look here. Look here. Look at me. Right? God is saying, you have lost perspective. Who is it that's protecting you? Who is it that you're to deal with here? You're going to run to Egypt because of the king of Babylon? Look at me. Do what I said. Stay in the land. I have a plan for Babylon to come and conquer you, the exile and the return, all in order to deal with sin and save you and deliver you. You don't think I got an answer for Egypt? You think Egypt is the answer? This is the issue brought up in verse 11. And in verse 12, God went on to say, he's even able to make the king of Babylon be merciful to them. Wow. God says in print, In verse 12, he's able to make the king of Babylon merciful to them. He turns the hearts of kings, you see. What is there for us to fear? What a beautiful thing. All they need to do is stay in the land. Do not flee. Do not mistrust God. You know how people put verses on refrigerators and verses on plaques? I don't know why they don't take Jeremiah 42, verse 12, and put that on a plaque somewhere. Probably because you have to have a whole sermon series around it to understand the context, and you have that golden nugget today of God saying, I could take the heart of the king of Babylon and make him merciful to you. Verse 13 begins the warning. But if you won't, if you insist on going to Egypt instead, if you will not remain in the land, Will not obey. Verse 14, you want to go to Egypt. Verse 15, hear the Lord's answer. Verse 16, the sword that you fear from the king of Babylon. The sword, the poetic sword, you know. Lived by the sword, died by the sword. The whole fear you have about violence and the sword. You're not escaping that going to Egypt because the sword will find you. You're going about it all wrong. And you won't get away with it. Because the sword that you fear is the thing that will chase you. Not only the sword, also starvation. You fear famine. You're going to starve to death. Verse 17, we get a repeat of the triple threat. We've seen this before in our study. Sword by famine and by pestilence. Yeah, triple threat. Until there's no survivors. Until there's no remnant. The disaster will be from the Lord himself. Listen, do you want to line up with the Lord or against him? That's your choice here. Let's be clear. It's not about Egypt being maybe more safe. It's about are you with the Lord or against him? Are you, is the Lord with you or not with you? Verse 18, God's anger and wrath are poured out on Jerusalem and the overthrow by Babylon. So also will God's wrath be poured out on the refugees when they flee to Egypt. God now adds four more words. Beyond the famous three of the triple threat, Sword, famine, pestilence, we now get four more words added. An execration, which is to detest. A horror, a curse, and a taunt. And they'll never see the land again. I don't know how you get more stark. I don't know how you get more clear. We already had a triple threat, three words. God added four more words. 
It's so abundantly clear. This is a life or death issue for them. Verse 19, God's been so clear yet says it again. Don't go to Egypt. Verse 20, it's a fatal mistake. It's going to cost your lives for sure. Verse 20 again, Jeremiah reminded them they promised to obey whatever the answer was that came back from God. You said you would. Scouts honor, <laughs> whatever it is they wanted to say. He's trying to hold them to it. Verse 21, Jeremiah came back with the answer from God, but sure enough, they did not obey. Verse 22, our last verse, Egypt equals death. How do I get that through your thick skull? Egypt equals death. Very clear. But it's not vindictive. This isn't God being hateful. He's not ramping up vocabulary in order to get them to do what he wants. He's saying, this is how life works in my world. I want you to understand how it works. I want to teach you how to view me, how to view my world, how I uphold my covenant and my new covenant and my promises to my people. I want to be so clear that you will learn something here. It's like we read in Hebrews 12, 5, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by the Lord. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And again, Hebrews 12, verse 11, we read, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, verse 11. If we will listen, if we will be trained, if we will learn, we would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The heart of God is not vindictive. The heart of God is wanting to train and to teach. This is how we view God, our God, the creator God and redemptive God. This is how we are to view him. We fear him, and therefore we fear nothing else. He wants to teach us that. Do we want to be trained? He has a heart that wants to disciple and show. Do we have hearts that want to be discipled and be shown, be corrected, be guided? Do we want to look at the world the Bible's way? Do we see our Heavenly Father as the permission giver for our plans? Or do we see him as one who has all wisdom and that we should start by seeking him before we make any plans? What happens when we ignore God's leading? Is it even safe to run away from God, run away from his land, run away from his word, run away from his guidance, run away from his prophet? What kind of God are we talking about here? We're talking about a God who very recently in our story has destroyed his city, has destroyed his own temple for worshiping him when sins were upon them. He would destroy the people who were left in his land and left and those who wanted to leave his guidance and leave his land and go into Egypt, would he destroy them? Let me fast forward and answer it this way. Would this God destroy his own son when our sins were placed upon him and he was put upon that cross? Would he destroy people who left his land, his word, his prophet? Would he destroy those who left him? It's not safe to leave the Lord. What happens when we ignore God's leading is we enter spiritual danger. Best thing to do is stop. You're already down to Bethlehem and you're intending to go to Egypt. Stop. Just, just stop. Don't go any farther. Pray, Lord, what should I do now? And mean it. 
do you want me to go back to Jerusalem? Do you want us to stay in the land? You will have at that time clear instructions from the Lord with stark contrast, painted out about what happens if you do the right thing, what happens if you decide to do the wrong thing instead. Words like famine, sword, pestilence. Fast forward, same city. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, served in Jerusalem, sins placed upon him. What happens then? Beatings. Crown of thorns. Crucifixion. Piercing. God is serious about sin. It's the whole point. He's serious about saving his people from their sin. That is the good news. He will not allow you and your inner lawyer to put up the foggy defense. We sought your counsel. It was just so unclear. It was so foggy. We just weren't quite sure. God will not allow you or your inner lawyer to put up the foggy defense. No, if your mind was made up all along and then you sought God to bless it, rubber stamp it, God will say to you, your mind was made up all along and then you asked me to bless it and to baptize it. So let's talk about that because you can't fool God. He knows your whole heart. He knows your whole mind. Are your plans yours? Give up your plans. Start over. Erase everything. Lord, what do you want me to do? Pray to God with some guidance and help and words such as our Our closing hymn will be, Thy way not mine, O Lord, however dark it be. Lead me by thine own hand, choose out the path for me. Smooth let it be, or rough, it will be still the best. Winding or straight, it leads right onward to thy rest. The kingdom that I seek is thine, so let the way that leads to it be thine. Else I must surely stray. I dare not choose my lot. I would not if I might. Choose thou for me, my God, so shall I walk aright. Take thou my cup, and it with joy or sorrow fill, as best to thee may seem. Choose thou my good and ill. Not mine, not mine the choice, in things or great or small. Be thou my guide, my strength, my wisdom, and my all. I have four applications to us. Number one, God's guidance is clear and don't say otherwise. Number one application, God's guidance is clear and don't say otherwise. Stay in the land. I could have a five-year-old exit this sermon and just from what we read, what's the point? What is God saying? Stay in the land. It's pretty abundantly clear. Don't say otherwise. Right? It represents staying in the realm of faith, staying in the ways of God, not turning to the ways of the world. God blesses through the means of grace. It's pr- prayer, scripture. It's fellowship with others. It's seeking him in the sacraments, trusting that God's judgment through Babylon points ahead to God's judgment in Christ at the cross. The exile points ahead to his burial, followed by his resurrection in the restoration from exile. Staying in the land equals submitting to the need for sins to be punished by a holy God in the way that God says for sins to be punished. If he says Babylon in exile and restoration, then it's Babylon exile resurrection. If he says his son must come and 
grow up to be a man and he must mount that cross for us and be crucified unto death in order for our sins to be cleansed, then that is the method and the only method for us to have salvation from him. It's clear. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It's clear. The people we studied today in chapter 42, they already have been given guidance, clear instructions. We are to come to Christ in repentance and faith and trust in him alone for salvation. His guidance is to continually seek him, Christ Jesus, through his word and spirit. It was given through Jeremiah, clearly. Later given through his son himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus, Luke 9, 23. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke 9, 23 to 24. God's guidance is clear. Don't say otherwise. Number two, when you're afraid, go to God for protection and comfort. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go to the world. King David, afraid of the Philistines, wrote in Psalm 56, 3, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. There's a song for you. It bears on our salvation. It bears on our daily Christian living. The enemies of the Babylonians, the enemies of the Egyptians, the enemies of the Philistines are all pictures of the enemies of God's people today, our own sinful natures, the world and the devil, and even death itself. Listen to Hebrews 10, 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. When we're afraid, we go to God our Father through Jesus the risen Son for protection and comfort because God our Father is faithful. That's number two. Number three, when you seek God's guidance, start by obeying the guidance you already have. Another way to say it is God's been trying to get your attention already for a long time, and here you come asking for guidance. The people we studied today in chapter 42 had been given guidance. Submit to God's plan or the overthrow of Egypt, the exile, and later the restoration. If they started with that, they would not have been praying and asking Jeremiah to pray about fleeing to Egypt. Proverbs 16.25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. God has given us the way of life. Don't try to invent our own ways to go through this broken world and then ask God if he'll please bless that mess. Jeremiah 21.8, the Lord said, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Fast forward again years later, our Lord Jesus repeated this guidance in the same city. Matthew 7.13, Enter by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate. The way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. Start with obeying the clear guidance from God that we already have. Turn to God the Father through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again, becoming the way of God for us. John 14, 6, I am the way. We must come to God through Jesus Christ by saving faith, starting with the guidance we already have. And the fourth and the last one, live on the word and prayer. Live on the word and prayer. Don't start by making up your best idea for what should be done now. Start with the word of God and prayer. Dig in to the word of God. You know, when Daniel was 
in difficulty, in exile, he was studying the book of Jeremiah. The turmoil that must have been in Daniel's daily life. And he was studying, he went into an all-in deep study of Jeremiah. You can't be so busy that you don't have time to dig into God's word because when you're super busy and everything's at stake, that's when you really need to study. Jesus taught us a prayer, Lord's Prayer, Father, your will be done. Is that truly our prayer? You want God's will? Or do you want God to breathe out energy and blessing into your will, your preferences, your way of structuring the world? Have you not encountered somebody who says, I really want to marry this person. Now let's just ask God to bless this marriage. You start by saying, oh Lord, guide me. You can pray the prayer of Jeremiah 42.3, but unlike the people who said it, you have to mean it. Listen, this is a beautiful prayer. Show us the way we should go and the thing we should do. Yeah, pray that. When the Lord answers back, we need to live it out and rejoice in it. For example, I'll give you one example as I close. You pray, um, Lord, take this problem away. Right? That's your prayer. Answer comes back as you're reading Scripture. Let's say you read Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Period. But I ask for the problem to be taken away. Not to be told to be patient in it. We live on the word of God prayer. It's a Christian life. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We live on the word and prayer. We choose life.